0: Welcome to Thriller Vault, where thriller writers tell their favorite stories. I'm your host, Phil Williams, and tonight I have the exciting conclusion of the biggest scam in the history of the world. If you haven't seen part one of the story, go back and do so now, because this won't make much sense without watching the first part. We left off with our hero, Charles Jefferson, being caught spying on the money men and their sinister plan. He was caught by a senior servant and not punished other than a tongue lashing. Here we go. Later that night, I couldn't sleep again. I transcribed everything I could remember about the conversation I heard in the smoking lounge. This Federal Reserve sounded like a fancy, counterfeiting operation to me. I kept my nose clean the next few days. I did my work and tried to ignore the plotting by the bankers and politicians. Despite that, I still overheard that they were in unanimous agreement for this central bank masquerading as the Federal Reserve. They called it a Trojan horse. Once they were in, they could chip away at the gold standard. If they controlled the money, they didn't care who controlled the laws. On my fourth night on Jekyll Island, I served dinner to the men under a chandelier the size of a horse. I set plates of filet mignon, mashed potatoes, and carrots before each of the men. As I went around the table, Henry said, Inflation is the key to the transfer of wealth. Henry gestured to Abe. Abe said, Everyone would lose except for us and the federal government. We have seen inflation all over the world since the beginning of money. The Romans created inflation by clipping coins and diluting the silver and gold coins with copper and steel. It's not detrimental to everyone. Obviously, we are the big winners in this environment. But anyone with wealth, anyone who can protect their wealth from inflation, stands to win. That's true. Abe said, of course, tilting the board creates losers, too. Wage earners will have to work harder and harder, but their wages will buy less and less. This is immaterial to me, but I think we should consider it because, historically, empires rot from within. Too much inequality leads to revolution. I'd rather not end up with my head on a pike. That's why we set a low inflation target, Henry replied which is why we must have control of the money supply. We control the money supply, we control inflation. Speculation in stock markets becomes much easier if we know whether we'll be tightening or loosening the money supply, Benjamin Strong said. Paul Warburg cut his rare steak. He held up a piece of meat, blood dripping on his plate. Timing is everything. The men laughed. I thought about everyone I ever cared about, My family, my friends, acquaintances, everyone I knew was a wage earner. My stomach lurched. I left the dining room. I walked through the kitchen, where George cut the cheesecake under Wilson's watchful eye. I marched past them both toward the servants' quarters. Where are you going? Wilson called out. I didn't reply. I went to my tiny room, grabbed my suitcase from under the bed, and packed my things. Wilson entered my bedroom with George watching from the hall. "'What is your problem, boy?' Wilson asked. "'I'm leaving. I'm done here.' I shut my suitcase and latched it. "'You won't get paid. Not a single red cent,' Wilson said. I grabbed my suitcase from the bed and faced Wilson. "'I don't care.' Wilson frowned and said, "'You're not leaving tonight. Won't be a fairy until the morning.' I cringed and set down my suitcase. Wilson pointed his craggy finger at me. You got one of two choices. You can leave now and sleep on the beach with the snakes and the crabs, or you can stay in this room until tomorrow. I stared at my feet and said, I'll stay here until tomorrow. Your room and your bathroom. That's it. I can't trust you anywhere else. I raised my gaze and said, I understand. That night, I wrote in my notebook, recreating the conversation I'd heard about inflation and the bankers controlling the money supply. A soft knock came to my door, startling me. I shoved my notebook under my mattress and went to the door. I opened the door and breathed a sigh of relief. It was George. Mind if I come in? George asked, still wearing his uniform at such a late hour. He held a plate with a large buttermilk biscuit. I stepped aside feeling guilty about the dishes George likely did by himself. George shut the door behind him. He handed me the plate. I thought you might be hungry. Thanks. I'd missed the servant's dinner, and I was starving. I sat on my bed and ate pieces of biscuit. George moved the little wooden chair across from me and sat down. You sure you want to do this? George asked. We're halfway there. I swallowed and asked. How many people do you care about in this world? My wife and my little girl, my parents, my siblings. I got seven of them. My wife's family, a few dozen friends, maybe fifty, sixty people. Why? Are any of them rich? I asked. George chuckled. What do you think? I nodded. What if the men here were planning to break into the houses of everyone you love and steal half of all their money? George chuckled again. Half of nothing's nothing. I set my half-eaten biscuit aside. I'm serious, George. Do you know what inflation is? It's when prices go up. Not exactly. It's when the value of the money goes down. That's what they'll do. George narrowed his eyes. And how are they going to do that? They'll use their connections in the government to make a central bank called the Federal Reserve. Then they'll abolish the gold standard so they can print as much money as they want. So what? That's more money for everybody. I shook my head. That's not how it works. The more money they create, the less it's worth. Sounds like we'll all be in the same boat. More money, but it's worth less. Sounds like it'll all equal out. I shook my head again. The devil's in the details. People with property and businesses and gold and stocks, they can protect their wealth from inflation. The rest of us will just get poorer and poorer while they take the purchasing power of our money like a thief in the night. It don't make no sense to worry about things we can't do nothing about. I reached under the mattress and removed my notebook. What if we could do something about it? George eyed my notebook and asked, What you got in there? I said. I wrote down everything they said. As soon as I get off this island, I'm going to the press... My congressman, my senator, my state representatives, my mayor. Hell, I'll hand out flyers on Wall Street if I have to. You could do the same. We could give the information to everyone we know. They could do the same. We could really do something. George pursed his lips. I was hoping for excitement, but his eyes looked sad, like a basset hound. Finally, he shook his head and stood from the chair. I can't. I have a family to think about. I stood from the bed and held up my notebook. This is for your family. George left my room without a word. I tossed and turned that night, brooding over George. Forget him, I thought. I don't need him. But I did need him. He could corroborate my story. Some of it, at least. Without him, it would be one man's servant against the most powerful cartel in the world. I finally fell asleep very late. I awoke with a start someone banged on my door nearly taking off the hinges before i could answer the door wilson entered my bedroom with henry davison the senior partner of jp morgan and owner of jekyll island right behind him along with senator aldrich the vips were dressed in their hunting attire that morning it was the first time i'd seen them in something other than a suit i figured if duck hunting was their alibi they were smart to strengthen the alibi by making it true I stood from my bed, wearing my shorts and t-shirt. What's happening? I asked. Did you steal gold coins from Mr. uh, Wilbur? Wilson asked. I didn't steal anything from anybody, I replied, breathless. It felt like deja vu. I had been fired a few months ago from my job as a footman for stealing. Like last time, I had nothing to do with it. The wife had a problem. She stole things for no reason which made her the perfect thief. Nobody ever suspected her. Why would someone who could buy everything steal anything? He's missing five gold coins, Wilson continued. If you don't return them, we will detain you and call the authorities. I put on my socks and pants while I talked. This isn't right, I said. I didn't take his coins. He gave them to that reporter at the train station. At the mention of the reporter... Wilbur, a.k.a. Henry, and Senator Aldrich gave each other a grave look. Wilson pivoted to the VIPs and asked, What would you like to do? I slipped on my shoes, the laces undone. Henry Davison said through gritted teeth, We need the notebook. My stomach churned at the mention of my notebook. I wonder if they had been watching me somehow, or maybe George had told them. Wilson pivoted back to me and said, Give me the notebook, boy. With a straight face, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'll call security, Henry said. Keep him here. Then Henry left my room. Give us the notebook, Wilson said. Don't make this more difficult than it has to be. I looked from Wilson to Senator Aldrich and back again, calculating the odds that these two old men could keep me in my little bedroom. I tied my shoes tight. While I was bent down, I grabbed the notebook from under the mattress and pushed through the men rather easily. Where do you think you're going? Wilson asked. I marched through the kitchen. I could have left through the side exit, but George was there and I wasn't sure whose side he was on. Of all the men on Jekyll Island, George was the only one strong enough to hold me. Wilson and Henry Davison hurried after me. Stop him, stop him, Henry called out. I continued through the living room toward the front door. Paul Warburg stood at the front door, also wearing hunting gear, his shotgun in hand. Paul, stop him, Henry called out. Paul's eyes bulged and he raised his rifle in my direction, stopping me in my tracks. Wilson and Henry surrounded me. Give me the notebook, Wilson said to my back. I remembered the VIPs ribbing Paul Warfield about not knowing how to hunt or even how to shoot. So I took a chance. I continued to the front door as if Paul was holding a pillow instead of a gun and my calculation was correct. He stepped aside and let me pass. What are you doing? Henry asked, annoyed. It's not loaded, Paul replied. I opened the door to the most beautiful morning I'd ever seen. The sky was bright blue. The sun was warm, but the breeze was cool. Birds chirped. I took a deep breath of sea air and I ran. I sprinted toward the front gate, feeling giddy and high on adrenaline. As I neared the gate, I worried about the security guards, but I didn't see them at their post. It was then that a flash came from my right and crashed into me. I lay on the ground, writhing. The wind knocked out of me. George snatched the notebook from my grasp and stood from the ground. He wiped his slacks and waved the notebook toward Wilson and the money men. He shouted, I got it, I got it. As my breath came back, I peered up at George and asked, Why? George traced the scar on his cheek with his index finger. These rich white men didn't slash my face and rob me. George held up my notebook. They already paid me for this. You shouldn't bite the hand that feeds you. They let me leave Jekyll Island with my suitcase, but not my notebook. But I have a good memory. On the train ride back to New Jersey, I recreated what I had heard. I remembered everything. In the weeks and months and years and decades after, I did exactly what I told George I'd do. I wrote thousands of letters to newspapers and politicians, but nobody cared. I stood on street corners and handed out leaflets detailing the treachery of the money men, but nobody cared. I worked tirelessly for the rest of my long life, but in the end, it didn't matter. The money men did all the things they said they would, and quite a bit more. They won, humanity lost. The Federal Reserve Act was passed on December 23, 1913, while many in Congress were at home with their families for Christmas break. The Federal Reserve funded and enabled every major war with inflation. The poor and middle class sent their sons to die in foreign lands and paid for it at home with the devaluing of the dollar, and consequently their meager wages and savings. They manipulated the money supply, causing boom and busts in the economy and financial markets, all with insider knowledge of what they would do so they could profit at the expense of everyone else. The United States ended the gold standard in 1971. Since 1910, the number of commercial banks in the U.S. has declined from over 20,000 to 4,844. Since 1913, the dollar has lost 97% of its value due to inflation. Whenever there's been instability in bank runs, the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. taxpayer have been there to bail out the Federal Reserve member banks because, after all, they're too big to fail and the money men are too big to jail. The story of Charles Jefferson is complete fiction, but the background story of the bankers going to Jekyll Island to plot and scheme to create the Federal Reserve is very true. The bankers I named were there on that fateful week, representing a quarter of the world's wealth. I sourced the background information from G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Unfortunately, the stats I detailed were also true. Since 1913, the dollar has, in fact, lost 97% of its value. Thank you so much for listening and watching Thriller Vault. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. I hope you all come back next Saturday for another episode.